is Our American Stories, and one of our favorite regular guests is Dr. Rose. And that's our shorthand way of introducing Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein. And we're glad she's here to share some of her experience, and hopefully for you in the audience who are wondering how to raise a child or have a problem with a child and are wondering what to do about it, sometimes there's a lot you can do about it. And sometimes the doctors get a diagnosis wrong, and sometimes that's your intuition, but you're not sure whether to challenge that doctor. Because after all, he's the guy who went through medical school, and he knows better. And by the way, this is not a slam on doctors. We love doctors. But it's complicated, and a mother's intuition is profound and should always be a part of any medical mix. And Dr. Rose knows a lot about kids, and, well, my goodness, at her clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, she cares for 5,000 children. She's also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. And Dr. Rose, you know, the last time you were on, we were talking about young Christopher and his mom, Juana. And it was a bit, a bit about autism and how there was a diagnosis And sometimes that diagnosis isn't quite right. Sometimes it is. And we had gotten into the discussion of your daughter, Hannah. And talk for a minute before we get into the next case, uh, which is going to be about grace, the emotional, uh, what we like to call the emotional wild child. Um, But I want to talk about your daughter and about what we were talking about just before we came on the air, which is, you know, if you're a hammer, well, then everything the hammer sees is a nail. And if you're an autism specialist and a person comes in, a young child, and a couple of the symptoms seem to indicate autism, well, then maybe that's where the diagnosis leads. Talk about that with your own daughter, if you could, Dr. Rose. Oh, yes, I'd love to. Uh, so Hannah, who is now 17 years old, uh, was a, a babbler. She would speak all over the place, and, and she was very precocious with her words, but she was a very uh, sort of emotionally uh, off-the-chart kind of kid. And some strange things would set her off. And, and Dave would look at her and sort of say, what is wrong with this child? But when we went to, uh, to, to amusement parks and there were the, the uh, train would go around and the normal choo-choo would send her screaming and yelling, covering her ears, and people would look around us would look at her like, oh, oh you have one of those kids. Well, the same thing would happen whenever we went into the, the bathroom, especially a, a public bathroom. And you know how those public bathrooms, sometimes they flush uh, without your, it's automatic flush? Yep. Well, Hannah would not even want to go into those stalls because she didn't know the precise moment when the toilet would flush itself. That would turn that kid into a, doc, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde moment and start screaming, yelling, covering her ears, and acting out. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what is wrong with this child? So we stopped trying to go to public bathrooms. So we start, you know, I, I'm a young mom, so I figure, well, why put her under that emotional duress? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And then I noticed that when she got frustrated and couldn't express herself or she didn't get something that she wanted or uh, for whatever reason, she was uh, very unhappy. She started flapping her hands and her hands would flap and then she would look like she was very anxious. Uh, And 
we I had gone to a medical conference uh, during that one of those times, uh, and the, one of the topics uh, was uh, developmental uh, delays and and uh, disorders. And of course, when you talk about developmental disorders, the topic of of uh, autism and autism autism spectrum disorders come up. Well, I read through the list again, and my eyes get wide big, and I said, "Oh my goodness." How did I not see this in front of me? Hannah has some of the diagnostic criteria of autism. And then I stopped myself. Wait a minute. My daughter's not autistic. My daughter may have a few of the criteria for the diagnosis, but she's not autistic. And then I started to ponder, and I started to talk with Dave, my husband, about her. He's, a, he's also a physician. So we talked about these things. And we said, well, what if we were to leave her that way? What if we thought that instead of working through these symptoms and signs, we avoided the situations that evoked these symptoms and signs? Well, we would probably have a child that would have more and more of these characteristics of autism. And so... I, uh, with that information and that thought process going through my head, I said, well, then I guess my role as a mom and a person who really wants to develop her into the, the full potential of her abilities, I need to work with her to work through these symptoms and signs that she's having so that she knows before she goes in, in, into the toilet stall, that toilet's going, going to uh, flush itself. But what do we do? We know that it's going to do that, and we are braced for it. Look, nothing happens. And so I did a lot of preventive medicine that way and said, okay, we don't not go to the bathroom, or these things make you anxious. We're going to be okay, or we're going to go to the little train thing. And watch, it's so much fun, and the other kids are, are having fun. You're going to have fun. Maybe not the first time, not when we get on there now, but you will start to have fun because this is a fun thing. And so we worked on those things. And, and I remember the first time that Hannah really tried it. She was like three and a half or four. She tried that little train thing. We still have the picture. She's sitting there very stoically, like like she's at an interview. And it was just so funny. She's trying to act like a big girl and get through this difficult thing for her. She's on a train. This is supposed to be fun. But she's working through it so hard that she actually looks like she's working. And I still love looking at that picture. But, of course, Hannah's not autistic. And she's very bright and loves to be in social, uh, in, in social environments now. Well, and good for you, Dr. Rose. And you actually got to practice what you preach. You were a coach in the end to your own daughter and got her through these things. And avoided a diagnosis. And imagine if it had, been, it had been the other way around and you just followed the diagnosis. My goodness. When we come back, we're going to talk about grace with Dr. Rose. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. American Stories, and we continue with Dr. Rose. 
one of our favorite regulars here on Our American Stories. And now we're going to talk about Grace, the emotional wild child. And we all know some, and thank goodness for them. And tell us a bit about Grace, Dr. Rose. Yes, of course. Well, Grace is a a very, um, very sweet girl with a huge heart. And she was first brought to me when she was approximately, well, it must have been two years ago. So she was about seven. And her mom brought her in because she wanted a referral to a psychiatrist because Grace was having constant meltdowns. And it wasn't just temper tantrums. It was the fact that in any given situation, and sometimes unknown situations, we we couldn't figure out what had triggered this, Grace would start to cry. Grace would uh, just become a big puddle of jello. She would discombobulate, drop down to the floor, and you'd have to pick Grace up. Well, these started at first at, at home. Uh, and it could be that uh, there was a meal that she didn't like so much or that mom now had to work and it was a different schedule, time schedule than the one that uh, Grace was accustomed to or that a big sister uh, was sick. And the list got longer and longer, but then it started spreading to school. And that's when the teacher called mom and said, I think she needs a psychiatrist. And from there, she came into my office so that she could have a psyche, a psych referral. So one of the doctors referred her to the psychiatrist. And mom uh, started giving her uh, medication so that her, her nerves would be calmed. But also the psychiatrist started spending time one-on-one uh, with Grace. Uh, after several sessions... Mom uh, had come in for a, a, a an appointment for th- that was that had nothing to do uh, with her uh, mental emotional status, and so I asked her how Grace was doing, and she said, "Well, not very well. It seems like we have to go to more medications, and and things are really not going well for her. So this anxiety and this depression has really gotten the best of her." And so that's when I asked her to, to uh, come in and make an appointment with me so that we could sit down and get to the bottom of it. Uh, in Grace's home, there was a lot going on. Mom had uh, separated uh, from, her, from Grace's dad. Uh, Mom herself was uh, very upset, very frustrated, very anxious, because here she was with, with uh, a, she's a newly single mom uh, with two girls, and she had to work full-time, and Grace was more and more of a handful. And so mom couldn't cope and was getting more and more anxious. And I said, have you noticed a trend? Is it that when you get more anxious, Grace gets more anxious and upset and, and emotionally labile herself? Mom stopped and said, yes, I do see that. And I said, Okay. I want you to understand that grace is a reflection of you. When you are upset, when you are anxious and frustrated, she is as well. Her little dinghy of a boat is being swept underneath waters with yours as yours is going down. You have to take a long breath and look at yourself before you start dealing with grace. 
because grace is just reflecting you. Maybe the person who needs some mental health uh, help might be yourself. How can I help you, Mom? How can, how can I help you to be more stable? How did she handle that, Dr. Rose? Oh, well, I, I, I just spoke to Mom and, and said, we, we all have difficult situations in life, and, and that doesn't make yours any easier to get through, but it, it does tell us that as moms, we have, to fit, we, we have to look inside and do whatever we can that is reasonable and true to deal with our problems before we come to our children and try to fix theirs and try, try to be a parent. And so mom started looking inside and started fixing on herself. That's when we saw the, the breakthrough with, with Grace. She again started doing well in school. She started to be able to control her emotions uh, and uh, be able to understand how to console herself when she was sad or when she thought about her dad who had left the home. She had, had, was able to sleep through nights again. She was able to not discombobulate when she didn't get what she wanted or what she thought that, that she should have. Now Grace is in fourth grade. She is one of the best students in her whole fourth grade class in her school. She is such a darling. And the one thing that I know about Grace is that Grace has a humongous heart. She feels other people's pain. And because of that, when her mom, who is the person that she loves the most, was going through this, she wasn't able to tell her mom, Mom, I feel, I feel so anxious and so emotional. She just shared in that emotionality, I call that sometimes. And so mom now knows it's not to be completely stoic and like you don't feel anything in front of your child, but they don't necessarily need to see us going through every single excruciating moment right in front of them. And so mom understands that for our children, we need to be strong. They need to see us as the leaders of our home. And this is what has been the emotional stability. She She doesn't have to go to the psychiatrist any longer because her mom is her mental health therapist. And now Grace is doing very well. And, you know, kids don't know any better. And if there's tumult in a household, uh, this can prompt all kinds of problems, Dr. Rose, can it? I mu- you must see that often. Well, and the thing about it is that they, it, when mom does, it has difficulty in being able to handle these difficult moments, the child thinks that that is the correct way to handle difficult moments. You fall apart. That's what you're supposed to do. Mom falls apart. I'm supposed to fall apart. And they don't understand being strong and being able to get through it day by day. And it hurts and it's difficult, but you do it because of the people that you love. And now I think that Grace understands that we don't fall apart when everything occurs to us because we need to be strong for those that we love. So true. Is there, a, is there a, a reverse in this, though, too, Dr. Rose? I know my wife and I have both worked hard on not having arguments in front of our child because we just don't want her to see that. We want to protect her. And I think we've both seen that in our lives, uh, arguments of adults and how it affected us. And the one time that we'd ever had a real loud argument in front of my little girl, I mean, she just started crying like it was the end of the world, and she went running into to Grandma's room. My wife's mom lives with us. And we were so beside ourselves. And then I thought, 
are we are we sheltering her a little too much? Uh, and can you do that? Can you be guilty on the other side, Doctor Rose? Uh, and yes, you can be because life needs to to uh, to reflect life, doesn't it? Yep. And I remember the same situation that we had with Hannah. Dave and I were arguing about uh, the most trivial of things: putting yep. up the Christmas tree. Yep. Dave doesn't like to put up the Christmas tree. I love to put up the Christmas tree, and so we were arguing, and it sounded like a real argument. And Hannah was about seven years old. She's hearing this whole thing, and she starts just crying. Mom and Dad are getting divorced. Yep. We look over at Hannah and we say, what? <laughs> yep. Getting divorced? Over, we are? Over what? A Christmas tree, of course. <laughs> a Christmas tree? Oh, darling. Parents argue all the time. You don't understand how much they argue. In fact, we don't argue compared to how often parents argue. This yep. is normal. And she, of course, started laughing. And we tell the story. It's, it, it's the Christmas tree divorce. And, and Hannah laughed with it. And so, yes, you know, life is about balance, and you really have to live in the middle. And children need to understand. And so it's best to preempt that and have children understand. Mom and Dad will argue. We do argue. Most of the time we do it behind closed doors so that you don't have to necessarily be involved in the argument. But we do argue, and when that happens, that doesn't mean we're getting divorced. We right. will work through it. We'll work through it, and that's what that's what we're supposed to do. And, Dr. Rose, thanks for all you do for all those kids. I mean, caring for 5,000 children is, hey, I have a, I have a, my hands full with one. And, uh, and, and thank you for all you do. And thanks for coming on the air. I know that it gives all the listeners solace, especially the ones who are raising kids, and knowing that they can be a part of any diagnosis and must be a part of any diagnosis, particularly with professionals, with doctors, psychologists, and psychiatrists. Uh, This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, one of our favorite guests, Dr. Rose. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You bet. And again, this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Our American Stories, where we love to tell great stories about music, sports, arts, love, death, and business, and occasionally about our government and its impact on our lives. And for the longest time, we'd been talking about in our studio about the role of this show and mostly its storytelling, but periodically we're going to poke around into stories about our own government because the fourth estate, and that is journalism, is supposed to protect us from an over-encroaching government. And that was always the rule and role of the First Amendment. And all too often now, you're not hearing enough stories about, about that and about the impact of government, and particularly government corruption, on our lives. And so when and where we find those stories, we're going to drill down deep on them because it's a core part of our show, talking about things like separation of powers, driving 
Howard to the local level whenever possible to keep government accountable to the people. It's a simple idea, we the people, and it's a fundamental part of our American stories, is that we honor the story and the impact individuals can have and want to keep government at bay whenever we can. And today, our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, brings us this story. October 3rd, 2013. Directed by a court order, the police raid four Wisconsin homes. In the middle of the night. I rushed downstairs thinking the worst. With their children there. Armed officer goes into the bedrooms of the kids and wakes them up. Who were sound asleep. It was about 5.30, it was dark outside. I hear a pounding on the door. This 16-year-old Noah Johnson was home alone. Mine's racing a mile a minute. His parents left early that morning for work and weren't there when their home was raided. I'm looking around outside. There are flashlights everywhere on the sidewalk around the house. The police wouldn't let Noah call his parents. They didn't let me call anyone. He couldn't let them know what happened, that he was safe. Deborah Jordahl's home was also raided, and this is what they told her. We would be subject to jail time and a fine if we told anybody about the search on our home. Did they say why? No. For that kind of show of force, with battering rams and taking everything, Children's computers were seized with homework on them. We're told to lie about it. So, you know, the old, the old thing, the dog ate my homework. How does it sound, you know, I lost my computer. Where'd you lose it? I don't know. You'd think these families were dangerous. Does it mean her husband's a pedophile? Uh, does it mean they're big-time drug dealers? But they weren't. You're supposed to have extraordinary circumstances to do a raid in the dark. And by the way, to do a home raid at all that's aggressive with, you know, flak-vested people in lights is supposed to require some risk of flight, danger, destruction of evidence, none of which is present at all. There's none of that. The crime alleged against him? A violation of campaign finance laws. Campaign finance laws. How boring. But the government's response? all too exhilarating for these families. Is this an appropriate tactic for any kind of campaign finance question? Where physical danger to the public isn't a question. See, madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. And these folks, who are primarily engaged in raising money and creating television commercials, aren't exactly the most intimidating characters on the block. They could have knocked, I would have let them in. Unlike these guys. I spent 14 years in an 859 cell surrounded by people who were less than human. My mission in that time was to become more than human. 
Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm specifically alleged that these individuals were involved in illegal coordination between Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker's campaign and nonprofit organizations who advocate for public policy positions. Well before the raids, Chisholm had the most private information from these individuals taken from them without giving them notice prior to seizing them, violating the Stored Communications Act, a federal law. They already had our emails, we subsequently learned. They already had our bank records. They knew what we were doing. We were proud of what we were doing. They didn't ask us. These raids were not really based on any belief that they would find incriminating information. The person speaking, Eric O'Keefe, said that it was a shutdown play to scare them into submission. Thankfully for Eric, his was one of the few homes that were not raided. One was mine. They didn't raid it because uh, I live in a rural area and the Democratic District Attorney didn't trust the Republican sheriff to conduct the raid and keep quiet about it. They were all told that they had to keep quiet about it because it's what's called a John Doe investigation, a special kind of secret investigation where all parties, the prosecutors, the police, and the defendants all have to keep mum. It's supposedly meant to protect innocent people's good name if the charges against them are dropped. But it also can protect overly zealous prosecutors, like this one, John Chisholm, the guy who requested the dark of the night raids and the illegal seizure of records from public scrutiny. Public scrutiny that brings accountability. And the public needed to know about this, Eric O'Keefe believed. And so he told them about it in violation of the secrecy order. An unconstitutional secrecy order, and I'm, I'm defying the secrecy order. Right now? Yes. Putting himself in greater danger of being sent to prison. But to O'Keefe, the greatest danger is having our rights taken away from us. In silence. What I want to have now in Wisconsin is debate about who is sovereign in Wisconsin. Do we have, are we ruled by the government or do we the people oversee the government? I think it's the job of the people to hold the government accountable. They have inverted the American idea of popular sovereignty. Meanwhile, government bureaucrats, and this prosecutor in particular, have ignored their primary job, the foundational purpose of government, to keep its citizens safe. Murders are way up, carjackings are up, the uh, administration in Milwaukee has a no-chase policy for car thefts, so the drug trade is now run from stolen cars, and there are, there, uh, are multiple car thefts every day, and they just rotate them, and they have, uh, they have teenagers do the stealing, and they put them in, and they do their transactions from them until they have a chase that gets enough of an ID, then they dump the car. And uh, that is the kind of thing that a district attorney responsible that citizens might be working on instead of raiding the homes of people who don't even live in this county. In July of 2015, the Wisconsin Supreme Court declared the John Doe investigation unconstitutional and ordered it to be shut down for good. The court also ordered the prosecutors to return the over 6 million records they seized from the targeted individuals. And yet somehow... Some way, the Guardian newspaper received sealed court records that included many of these communications and published them over a year later on September 14th, 2016. Now, who would leak such a thing? 
The sad thing is that it doesn't take much thought to take a guess. This sad saga continues. Stay tuned. And great job on that, Alex. And what a story. I love that line from Eric O'Keefe. Are we ruled by the government or do we run our government? And again, these are the kind of stories we'll dig into. You'll get the other part of this story very soon. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, the John Doe investigation in Wisconsin. American stories and we've got a story for you right here and it's a sports story but it's about a lot more and in the end it's really a leadership story and we love to tell leadership stories here on our American stories because it is not a commodity in this country in fact it's a rare thing to touch and I think the only way you learn leadership principles is by either experiencing them through another person through an actual leader or hearing stories of leaders and then trying to replicate them And this story is about a pro quarterback, Tony Romo. And for anyone who's, well, done anything but live under a rock, the Dallas Cowboys have been led by a rookie quarterback and a rookie running back to one of the best season records, regular season records they've had in their history. In fact, they had an 11-game winning streak at one point. Only one team in the NFL has beaten them, and it's the same team, the New York Giants, and they have beaten them twice. And Tony Romo got injured early in the, in the season, and he was the star at Dallas. And I could go on and on with his accomplishments. A four-time pro bowler, passing leader in the NFL, touchdown leader, a percentage completion leader. You name the statistics, Romo's done it. But he got hurt, and so he helped this kid, Dak Prescott from Mississippi State, lead the team. Only as Dak started to lead the team, the team started winning. And the team started to assemble a remarkable chemistry. You could see it. You could feel it. They were winning, and they thought they could win, and then they kept winning. And they just, they've been playing like the Cowboys haven't been playing in a long time. What's a man to do? What is Tony Romo to do? Well, he had two choices. Get behind the team and lead by following. Or start to create dissension in the team. Start to talk to some of the teammates and say, hey, when I get healthy, it's my team. Go to the owner, Jerry Jones, and say, hey, listen, this is how it's going to be. It's my team. But no, he kept kept supporting Dak. And one day, not too long ago, he called a press conference because everybody was wondering, when's Tony coming back? Is he coming back? And it was becoming a distraction. And so Tony Romo had to handle it. And he he did it the way, well, I think we'd, all want to do it this way if we had the guts and the courage and the conciliaries to give us this advice. And I'm sure he had some really good conciliaries. But Tony Romo steps before the national press. Everybody's wondering, what is he going to say? What is he going to do? This is his life. He's one of the greatest quarterbacks in the entire league. And this rookie is having a great year. Well, 
He steps up to the podium. The 36-year-old fights back, really, really fights back emotions that are deeply suppressed and heartfelt. This is how he started things. So, here we go. Uh, To say the first half of the season has been emotional would be a huge understatement. Um, Getting hurt when you feel like you have the best team you've ever had was a soul-crushing moment for me. Then to learn it's not three or four weeks, but 10 is another blow. And through it all, you have a tremendous amount of guilt on having let your teammates, fans, and organization down. After all, they were depending on you to bring them a championship. That's what quarterbacks are supposed to do. That's how we're judged. I loved that. I still do. But then here you are, sidelined, without any real ability to help your teammates win on the field. That's when you're forced to come face-to-face with what's happening. Seasons are fleeting, games become more precious, chances for success diminish. Your potential successor has arrived, injured two years in a row, and now in the mid-30s. The press is whispering, everyone has doubts, you've spent your career working to get here. Now we have to start all over. You almost feel like an outsider. The coaches are sympathetic, but they still have to coach, and you're not there. It's a dark place. Probably the darkest it's ever been. You're sad and down and out, and you ask yourself, why did this have to happen? It's in this moment that you find out who you really are and what you're really about. By the way, he is reading from his script. And do you hear the way that started? He like had to get himself psyched up, and he said, here we go. That dark place, we have all been there, right? Some version of it. Not this public, though. And, well, he's not inviting a pity party here. Let's go back to first principles, is what he says. You see, football is a meritocracy. You aren't handed anything. You earn everything, every single day, over and over again. You have to prove it. That's the way that the NFL, that's the way that football works. A great example of this is Dak Prescott and what he's done. He's earned the right to be our quarterback. As hard as that is for me to say, he's earned that right. He's guided our team to an eight and one record and that's hard to do. If you think for a second that I don't wanna be out there, then you've probably never felt the pure ecstasy of competing and winning. That hasn't left me. In fact, it may burn more now than ever. It's not always easy to watch. I think anybody who's been in this position understands that. But what is clear is that I was that kid once. Stepping in, having to prove yourself. I remember the feeling like it was yesterday. It really is an incredible time in your life. And if I remember one thing from back then, it's, it's the people that helped me along when I was young. And if I can be that to Dak, you know, I've tried to be, and I will be going forward. And there you have it. Romo paying it forward to Dak Prescott, a 23-year-old who was the starting quarterback for Mississippi State from 2013 to 2015, 
Prescott was drafted by the Cowboys in the fourth round in 2016. And now here's Romo passing the torch before either of them expected, because that's what's right for the team. I think you all know something magical is happening to our team. I'm not going to allow this situation to negatively affect Dak or this football team by becoming a constant distraction. Um, I think uh, think Dak knows that I have his back, and I think I know that he has mine. Ultimately, it's about the team. It's what we've preached our entire lives. I can remember when I was a kid just starting out and wanting to be a part of something bigger than myself. For every high school kid out there or college player, there's greatness in being the kind of teammate who truly wants to be part of a team. Everyone wants to be the reason they're winning or losing. Every single one of us wants to be that person. But there are special moments that come from a shared commitment to play a role while doing it together. That's what you'll remember. Not your stats or your prestige, but the relationships and the achievement that you created through a group. It's hard to do, but there's great joy in that. And all the while, your desire burns to be the best you've ever been. You can be both. I figured that out in this process. It's what separates sports from everything else. It's why we love it. It's why we trust it. It's why I still want to play and compete. Romo still has that fire from his younger days, but he has certainly learned a few things along the way. Lastly, I just want to leave you with something I've learned in this process as well. You know, I feel like we all have two battles or two enemies going on. One with the man across from you. The second is with the man inside of you. I think once you control the one inside of you, the one across from you really doesn't matter. I think that's what we're all trying to do. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. And it's one of the best speeches I've heard from an athlete. Actually, any leader. Just giving it up and surrendering and becoming a follower. You know, one of the best hours we've done here on Our American Stories was the hour we did on Coach Lombardi. And if you recall, or if you don't, Jerry Kramer was the star guard of that team. In fact, he's the one who created that block that allowed... Green Bay Packers to beat the Cowboys on, in the ice ball. And Kramer was telling a story about how Coach Lombardi led and drove him and how he inspired him with his leadership. But one day, when Coach Lombardi invited him to go to Catholic Church and to get more in touch with his faith, this was the day that Kramer really learned a lot about Coach Lombardi. He gets into the church, he looks around, Coach Lombardi's not in the congregation. He's an altar boy. And he was always an altar boy because Lombardi understood deeply that to be a great leader, you've got to be able to follow. And so he was teaching all the guys there, everyone in Green Bay, that he had a boss too. And I can only assume that Tony Romo had some tremendous counsel in putting this note together and that he'd spent a lot of time thinking about what was essentially a retirement notice, at least from the Dallas Cowboys, and at least for now. And by the way, we'll tell you about Dak Prescott in another time, because what a story that is. There's a great piece in, in ESPN about Dak Prescott's desire to win. But in that very short piece, 
in ESPN was also all about Tony Romo's desire to turn Dak into a winner. Tony poured everything into Dak. And leaving you with that thought, it's our job to pour everything into our teams. If you want to be a part of a great team, be a great teammate. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. I looked out the door I can tell that old milk cow For the way she looks Holy fellas That don't move me Let's get real, real gone for a change Well, I woke up this morning And I looked out the door I can tell that old milk cow I can tell the way she looks Now if you stole my milk cow I'd be the rapper on home, home. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and you're listening to Elvis Presley's song Milk Cow Blues Boogie because on this day in history the producer of that song and so many greats was born Sam Phillips as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, music, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. Sam Phillips was Elvis's producer, but he also produced for B.B. King, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, and so many more that we'll get into this hour. And we'll be doing it with Peter Goralnik, one of the country's leading cultural historians. Peter wrote the book on Sam Phillips, entitled Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. Well, I've got to tell you, when I read this Sam Phillips book, I just couldn't put it down. Where he grew up, how, well, we got a chance to talk to Pete, and we spoke with him earlier today and are now bringing you the highlights from our conversation. Peter told us it took him 10 years to get his first interview with Phillips. Sam rarely did interviews. He saw it as looking backwards. But Peter was able to gain Sam's trust in that first meeting, an unusual meeting, an unusual window into the man, and an unusual opportunity to build an ongoing relationship with him. I thought, you know, most likely we'll go in and I would go in and we would talk about... uh Howlin' Wolf and Jerry Lee Lewis and Rufus Thomas and Elvis Presley, and that would be, that, you know, we would be talking about the music. And um, the thing was that after, uh, 
Uh, it just so happened that the sprinkler system at the radio station, his new radio station, WLVS, which he had supervised the building of, the, pl- the plantings, every, every detail, as he did with every building, building that he put up, uh, the st- recording studios, everything. But uh, it happened the sprinkler system had gone off overnight and flooded the station. When I got there, uh, the, uh, when I got there, uh, um, Samsung's, Samsung Knox met me in the parking lot and said, you know, we're not going to be able to do this. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to have to reschedule and explain about the flood. And uh, being the resourceful person that I am, uh, and that's intended in a highly ironic way, I said, well, can't I help? And I spent the next eight or nine hours carrying buckets, squeegeeing, you know, moving tape boxes, just doing anything that, you know, that, and catching glimpses of Sam all through the day, uh, commandeering this this disparate force of family, friends, um, people who work there, uh, dealing with insurance agents. And I, I, later on, I mean, or even at the time, I realized I was, see, the, I was seeing something I would never have the chance to see again. It was Sam producing a session. It was a real-life real session, but it was a session. But it was only at the end of the day that we finally got together, and we had what I think was the shortest interview uh, I ever had with Sam, and Sam may have ever given, but it was two and a half or three hours anyway. We asked Peter what was the most fundamental part of Sam Phillips' story, and he said it was his vision, a guiding vision so bold that the life it led would be attributed with such a bold title as the man who invented rock and roll. Long before Sam got into the music business, long before he ever imagined uh, start having a studio of his own, he saw in the music a power to break down the walls of segregation. He saw in the music a kind of universal appeal, a, per, a beauty, a profundity, a depth that could reach all people across the board, and it could break down all the segregated barriers that existed not just in society uh, at large, but in the music world where, where uh, the charts were divided up into pop, hillbilly, and race, as it was called to begin with, and then R&B. And so that from the start, from the time he opened his studio, and it was with the exclusive purpose of recording, as he said, some of the great Negro singers in the South who have no other place to go, uh, it was ex- devoted exclusively to recording these black blues singers uh, at the beginning. But it was with the idea that the power of their music would just cut across all the racial boundaries, all the social boundaries, and become pop hits. And that is so true of music. It's why we spend so much time on music. I think we're going to be taking a dive into the Muscle Shoals documentary in the next couple of weeks. I know Jesse wants to head up there. And when you watch that story, my goodness, you watch racial boundaries just get smashed. And it surprises some of the black singers who come down from places like Detroit, and Chicago and New York to this little tiny joint in Alabama where there are a bunch of white young players called the Swampers. And Wilson Pickett's hilarious in it. He, he flies into this little place and he sees black people picking cotton and he's thinking, what the heck are these people doing sending me down here? But he ends up finding his soulmates in these young white kids. And everybody thought they were black musicians. And again, that's the beauty of music. And in the South at this time, This was the antidote to the racism that was experienced down here. We broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi, not far from Memphis. And when we come back, more from Pete Goralnik, Peter Goralnik, on Sam Phillips' life for the hour on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with our interview with Pete Garalnik on his book, Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. And we're spending the hour on this extraordinary life story and this great, great piece of writing. If you can, pick this book up. You will not put it down. It's better than any piece of fiction you could ever imagine. We were talking about this vision of Sam Phillips. Where did it come from, we asked Peter. And could this story have ever happened if Sam Phillips was born in Akron or Albany instead of Alabama? Well, it probably couldn't have happened in Akron or Albany because they didn't serve as a kind of uh, convergence of all these cultures of black and white, of poor and, you know, rich. I mean, he was born uh, just outside of Florence uh, in a little... uh, Hamlet really called Loveless Community, named for the which was the name of his wife's family. He grew up on a 323-acre farm a little further out, which his father rented. He didn't have enough money to own a farm like that, and and lost his father lost it when the depression came along. And Sam worked out in the fields alongside uh, black and white sharecroppers and tenant farmers. But as a seven or eight-year-old, uh, and this has been brought home to me by relatives of Sam's, relatives from his generation who didn't necessarily approve of what he articulated or what he felt, um, Sam saw, saw from, the, from the very beginning, as a six, seven, eight-year-old, um, and he would say to me, now remember, this is a seven or eight-year-old kid, you know, <laughs> to, to bring it home to me, how unusual it was, and, and also how little, uh, how little, um, uh, popularity this was going to gain him with anyone around, but he he sensed the basic inequity that existed, the inequitable arrangement between blacks and whites. He was very much aware of the fact that these uh, African-American children he was friendly with, he could be friendly with them, he could play with them, they couldn't go to the same school as he did. When he went to church at Highland Baptist a little later on, um, he would uh, go around the corner a block and a half to uh, uh, Armstead Methodist Chapel, the black church, the little black church that was there, and it was still there when we shot the documentary. And I could see how much it meant to him because we went in there, and Sam was just rocking there. But um, he would go there, and he would he would stand outside that church for an hour or two after his own service was over, and he might get a girl to go with him, or he would be there alone. But it was the power of the music, the power of the spirit, the sense of this downtrodden people who had such a spirit to create a culture of their own and a culture that in so many ways, I mean, this is what James Baldwin writes about in The Fire Next Time, but a culture that was so alive to the moment 
in which everything that was done, you know, from the breaking of bread to making love, had such vividness. Sam was just, a, he, he woke up to that. He just, this was everything to him. And then, well, and then Memphis happened. When he was 16, and a bunch of his friends from high school uh, were uh, driving to Dallas to, to go to a revival meeting in Dallas, Sam insisted that they drive by Beale Street, which they didn't necessarily have to do. And as Sam said, they arrived at Beale Street, which was known as uh, uh, Black America's Main Street. Uh, and he said um, they arrived at they arrived on, at Beale Street at three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, pouring down rain. He said Broadway could never have been as alive. And he saw in it, I mean, he saw in it as as he described it. He said the other kids may have been. I mean, a polite word would be to say that they were amused. He said, for him, it was a vision of freedom. It was. A, he said, every single person who was there, old men, young, you know, young hepcats in their uh, zoot suits and stats and hats. I mean, everybody, we, uh, you know, country, you know, country hicks. Everybody was there. They were all black, but everybody was there because they wanted to be. And he said it was a vision of freedom that he wished everybody in America could see. And at that moment, this is 1939. He determined that he was going to live in Memphis, not to live up with a high mocking mocks, not to be at the Hotel Peabody, which is where he wound up working for WREC, which was a terrific station and, and really a pinnacle in the sense for a radio career. That wasn't why he was there. He was there because of Beale Street, and he let everybody know it. I mean, I, this is not a matter of Sam just declaring this after the fact. He, um, His wife, Becky, who had been to Memphis many times because her father worked for the railroad and they got free passes, and Andrew had stayed at the Hotel Peabody, said, you know, Sam talked to me over and over again when I first met him about he was going to move to Memphis someday. And she said, but I never understood what he was talking about until we got there. And what he was talking about was Beale Street. Well, on January 3rd, 1950, and at only 26 years of age, Sam opened his studio, the Memphis Recording Service, to chase down his vision of finding and recording a black artist with crossover appeal into white America to bring the races together if only on the airwaves and most of these black artists Sam recorded and Sam himself were from agrarian communities they were farmers we asked Peter if this was an accident or was there something special about that agrarian lifestyle when Sam finally came to record some of these musicians whether it was Howlin' Wolf uh, or Kyle Perkins they had all grown up uh, on the farm, they had all grown up as sharecroppers, really. They knew what it was to work. And, I, I, you know, when you ask about an advantage, the advantage, I would think, would be the difference between living in the real world, which Sam venerated. I mean, we were shooting down by the Tennessee River for the uh, documentary that, that um, uh, we did in 99. And we're down by the Tennessee River in sight of the bridge uh, where uh, Sam's father had been the signal man. And um, as we were shooting... Uh, some dump trucks drove by in the background. And Craig Spierko, the cinematographer, stopped shooting, as almost any cinematographer would. And Sam just berated him. He said, what the hell are you stopped shooting for? Those are the best damn dump trucks you're ever going to see. You know, those dump trucks, you couldn't pay a million dollars to get dump trucks like that. He says, you know, that, that, that what's going on out there, that's real, R-E-A-L. And that was, he, he just believed in the real. It was, uh, he said, you think when I recorded uh, a song on... Um, I forget who it was now, uh, 
uh, Jimmy DeBerry, when I recorded a song on Jimmy DeBerry and a telephone went off in the front room and Marion Keisker wasn't there to answer, do you think I was going to record another, do another take with a, you know, without that telephone? That was the best damn telephone you're ever going to hear, you know, <laughs> on a record, the best damn sounding telephone you're ever going to hear. As I was walking down the street, two women standing on my feet. The point was, on some level, he believed in playing the hand you're dealt and making the best of it, and he did that all of his life. And I would say that, that it's that that respect for the real, the respect for the real. You know, Sam believed in perfect imperfection. He hated the word uh, uh, perfection. He said it should be banned from the English language. Um, but I, it, uh, the, the idea of the imperfect highlighting what there is to embrace, what there is to appreciate, what there is to enjoy in life, just stayed with him throughout everything. And I would think that would be something that, you know, somebody who grew up under, uh, you know, difficult circumstances, under circumstances in which they had to contend with real adversity, with physical adversity, they had to work hard. That's a, that's a much better preparation, I think, for, um, you know, for art, for making art, for making music, for, for inspiration uh, than growing up uh, in a bubble. <laughs> yes, indeed. And you're listening to Pete, Peter Goralnik and his great new book, Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. And we're going to be spending another two segments with Peter. We interviewed him earlier today. This book's actually been out for probably five or six months, but we, we take our time and we really read these books and then we really spend time with the authors. We don't do a lot of books but when we do, it's because they capture some essence of our country, some spirit and spiritual dimension. And my goodness, you hear it here. At seven years old, this kid's feeling something special for people he's working in fields with. And so many other kids in this part of the country. And frankly, look, I grew up in New Jersey, and there was just as much racism there. There were all kinds of words for black people that were terrible there, too. And this kid saw something different. He saw people like himself. He saw people with dignity. And he wanted to make music that was their music and bring it to the rest of the world. What a unique poet, really. And the name is Sam Phillips. You know him, but you don't know his story. When we come back, more from Peter Goralnik. And again, the book, Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Smart and designed, black convertible top, and the gals don't mind. Sporting with me, riding all around town for joy. Blow your horn, Raymond, blow! Well, you can't be my love, baby. You ain't got the style. I'm gonna get some real gone love that'll drive a cool cat while Gonna move, roll and run on down This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to some early Roy Orbison and Peter Goralnik. 
It's written the book on Sam Phillips. It's called Sam Phillips, the man who invented rock and roll. And we spoke to Peter earlier today. Let's hear another incredible story about Sam's love for what Peter called that perfect imperfection. But it meant that when uh, uh, Ike Turner came up with the King's Rhythm from uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi, for their big opportunity to record, B.B. King had told him there was this little white guy up in Memphis, uh, you know, who he thought might be interested in recording them. B.B. Uh, King was just starting out his career. He was just he was Riley B. King at that point, but um, but he had recorded for Sam, and um, Ike uh, and the band arrive, and they had several incidents along the way up. I mean, they were stopped several times uh, for the same crime they might be stopped for today, uh, driving while black. They also had a flat tire, which they would be less likely to have today, but maybe they would still have that. And in in changing the tire, they dropped the. Um, guitar amp out of the uh, trunk and they busted the uh, uh, tube in the amplifier and when they came into the uh, studio and they sat up they realized that you know that the tube was busted for one thing and that you there was a buzz going through the uh, sound you know that you you could hear a buzz uh, running through the sound um, because of that busted tube and they were just crestfallen they just felt like this is the end of our this this is it we're just not going to have another opportunity and Sam listened to it. He said, no, that's original. He said, that sounds good. That's going to make, you know, that's going to give, I don't know if he said it. That's what he thought, but he thought it. <laughs> and he said, that's going to give this recording, you know, something really different. You women have heard of jalopies. You've heard the noise they make. But let me introduce my new rocket 88. And, you know, for Sam, if you weren't doing something different, you weren't doing anything. Anyway, so the, he went and got some paper uh, in the restaurant next to him, Ms. Taylor's, and stuffed it in the amp. And you can hear that buzz running through the uh, recording to this day. I mean, this was, you know, the big one of the biggest R&B hits of its time. And it's often been called uh, the first rock and roll record. But what made it distinctive in Sam's mind, uh, I mean, Sam believed in individualism, and then he would say, in the extreme. And he believed in that indistinctiveness and originality. And essentially, that's how he lived his life. But but that was what made it different. And, and anybody pursuing a conventional course would have said, look, let's record another day when we can get an when we can get an amplifier, when we can get it to sound right. But for Sam this sounded righter than right. Real than real. Yeah, stumbling upon those accidents is is half of the magic of art. Next I want to play you a clip from the A and E documentary about Sam Phillips. Phillips persuaded Tennessee Governor Frank Clement and Warden James Edwards to allow five long term prisoners to record with him. The idea of doing this tied in so intellectually with what I was trying to do and for something like this to come along, can you imagine how I must have thought I was dreaming? The initial recording session was set for June 1st, 1953. At Sam's expense, the group was driven under armed guard to the Sun Studio in Memphis. As soon as I heard them sing... Then the devastation came to me. Ooh, wow. I can't miss getting something extraordinary here. Well, the Prisoner's record would sell 35,000 copies, and Rocket 88 sold 100,000. Not bad accomplishments by any measure, but it still wasn't the accomplishment Sam was looking for. That black crossover artist who could reach the expanse of white America and bring the races together. 
that he was convinced that Rocket 88 was going to be across the board hit. Uh, the last song that he recorded on B.B. King, or one of the last songs, was She's Dynamite, which was recorded in the immediate aftermath of Rocket 88. And if you listen to it, you think, man, B.B. King could have been a rock and roll star. It wasn't necessarily what B.B. King wanted to do. I think this is one instance where Sam actually was, he sensed that this was the direction uh, that the music was going to go into. This was what was going to cause, have the most impact. But B.B. King on She's Dynamite is just rocking out. And you listen to a song that Howlin' Wolf did around the same time, because how this I never saw Sam saying at the time, but he said over and over again in our conversations how he believed that Howlin' Wolf could have been as big as Elvis Presley and could have been as big with a white audience as he was with a black. And I, I can't say that I can see that altogether. I totally see what Sam means when he says uh, said about uh, Howlin' Wolf's music that when he first heard it, he he said to himself, this is where the soul of man never dies. It is where the soul of man, I mean, and he said there was never a more profound artist. Uh, he never, there never was a more profound artist, and he never recorded a more profound artist than Howlin' Wolf. Of all the artists he recorded, Wolf was just the pinnacle. If you listen to that, to, to Wolf doing... Uh, um, uh, Cadillac Daddy, Miss, uh, uh, Mr. Highwayman. Be careful what you're driving, man. That Cadillac get away. You better be careful. You hear the same thing. It is just rocking. These things are rocking. And he, in the summer of '53, once uh, with when. Uh, uh, when Sun Records was finally really up and running, and he had hits with Bearcat uh, by Rufus Thomas, which was a takeoff on Hound Dog. He had hits with the Prisoners. Uh, uh, Bearcat actually came first before the Prisoners. He had these wonderful hits, uh, wonderful records by Little Junior Parker, uh, or which was called uh, Little Junior's Blue Flames. That was the name of the group. And uh, he put out Mystery Train and Love My Baby and... Uh, and they just, you know, you listen to them. They're they're the prototype of rockabilly. They have the guitar, they have the vo- vocal, they have the drive, they have the rhythm. And why couldn't they be pop hits? I mean, there's one reason they couldn't be pop hits, and it was because of the complexion uh, of the musicians and of the singer. And Sam, really, at this point, I think, in '53 and in '54, was putting out all these records, great records, some of which. Uh, um, some of which were were R&B hits for sure, and maybe sold fifty thousand, seventy-five thousand. You know, uh, a little more than the Prisoners. Uh, I think that um, uh, Bearcat sold sold that well, but um, he couldn't stay in business, and he recognized he had run up against a wall that uh, that he simply couldn't overcome. He had, he never lost his faith that the music would would overcome. Prejudice would overcome, you know, divisions would overcome uh, category, but he couldn't seem to do it through the uh, through the artists that he was recording, through the African American artists that he was recording, and he was on the verge of bankruptcy. And he was on the verge of bankruptcy when a miracle happened, and we're going to dig into that in the next segment. But he had all these great black artists, as you heard, but. At this point in time, the, the radio frequencies were completely segregated. And this is the really big part of this story that the book focuses on as well. 
There was black music and black folks listened to it, and there was white music and white folks listened to it. And, of course, white people would steal away and sometimes listen to that black station because, well, Sam Phillips did. But in the end, not many. So you couldn't have that mega hit. Hard for any of us to appreciate who grew up in the 60s and 70s that record companies like Atlantic Records. By the way, you want to hear a great hour. And it sounds, we were commenting about it during the break. The life of Ahmet Ertegen, the founder of Atlantic Records, is the citified version of Sam Phillips' life, which is the countrified version of rock and roll and music and the integration of black and white songwriters, music under one label. And so go to the website at Our American Network and look up Ahmed Ertigan and you'll love that hour. We're going out with some Howlin' Wolf, The Life of Sam Phillips, Peter Goralnik's great work, Sam Phillips, the man who invented rock and roll. More after these messages. is our american stories our final segment i'm peter goralnik's latest book sam phillips the man who invented rock and roll we love great american stories this is an entrepreneur story this is an art story this is a race story this is a story about really the american struggle for its own soul because that's what was happening in the 1950s and 60s and sam phillips was really in my mind on the cutting edge of another civil rights movement ahead of martin ahead of all of them, a real pioneer. And as we talked about, something miraculous was about to happen, and here's what it was. I think you can only say by coincidence at this point, this young kid comes into the studio. Um, he's uh, uh, 19 years old, is Elvis Presley, and he appears to have uh, little, uh, of, uh, he, he little impulse towards the kind of music that Sam felt was really going to make a difference. I mean, he was a ballad singer when he came into the studio. But uh, Sam called him in for a uh, an audition session, had him come in with uh, two musicians, uh, uh, Scotty Moore on guitar and Bill Black on bass. They had given him an audition the day before at Scotty's house. And Elvis sang everything he knew, and it was almost all ballads. It was, you know, Eddie Arnold ballads, Eddie Fisher ballads, Dean Martin, uh, Ink Spots, I mean, uh, beautiful ballads and beautifully sung. And Sam recognized the distinctiveness and the uniqueness of his voice, but didn't feel that he, they had um, hit on the, uh, the, it's not the groove, they, they just hadn't hit on the element that would bring out that distinctiveness best. And then at a moment, really, I mean, it's such a famous moment, it, it, uh, I hesitate to even tell it again, but... You know, they reached a point in the session, it wasn't even a session, it was an audition, uh, when 
everybody was just worn out. Everybody had to go to work the next day. Scotty and Bill and Elvis all had jobs they had to go to early. And they were just, you know, on the verge of packing it up. And uh, everybody was pretty discouraged, and Elvis most of all, because, again, much like Ike Turner earlier, he saw his opportunity slipping away. And while they were taking a break, he, Elvis picked up the guitar, started uh, frailing away on it and singing a song that was unlike anything that he had sung up till that point. Uh, and Scotty and Bill fell in. I mean, the song was uh, a blues, uh, blues by Arthur Big Boy Crudup from, um, I, I think, eight years before at that point, and uh, not well-known particularly. Um, and... Uh, Sam just perked up. He just snapped his fingers, you know, or, or metaphorically or or, real, or or for real. And he said, "What's that you're doing, to Scotty?" And Scotty says, "We don't know." And uh, Sam says, "Well, figure out what it is, uh, you know, and uh, get back on it again, and figure out a, figure out a place to start, and just get back on it again because that's it." And although it was less than an ideal route, Elvis would help make Sam's vision a reality. And that and that was the sound he had been looking for. It was what he had articulated for the last year or two to his assistant and his associate and his amanuensis and his his great helper, Marion Keisker. He had said to her uh, on more than one occasion, and he continued to say it in later years, he, he, I mean, to acknowledge it in year, later years, he said, if I could find a white man with a Negro sound and much more important than Negro feel, and Negro was a term of respect at that time, um, I could make a billion dollars. And Marion always made the point that by quoting him as saying a billion dollars, it showed that it wasn't the money. He wasn't serious about it. This was like, this is like the man who invented rock and roll. It's, it's an over the top kind of statement. But his point was that he could put the music across. If he could find someone who could do it as authentically uh, and with as much belief and as much feel as Lightning Hopkins or John Lee Hooker, two of the people who most inspired him at that time. Um, if he uh, could, could find a white singer who could do that, the, power of the music would come across to a white audience. The white audience would pick up on it. And the minute that they started buying that music, and this is really the story of rock and roll. It's not, you can't assign it to Sam Phillips alone. You can't assign it to Elvis alone. But once they started buying that music, then the walls would come tumbling down and the doors would open wide. And through those doors would come the great, inspired, uh, authentic, African-American um, R&B stars who up until that point had been relegated to one small corner of the universe. They were R&B stars, people like Ray Charles, people like Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Little Richard. But once those doors opened up, they would come through and they would become pop stars. And that's in essence what came, what happened. Uh, and uh, it's not that it happened in in a way that you can say, well, everything was perfect or that uh, it, that there weren't great inequities in the wake of that, but essentially that was the democratizing effect of rock and roll to which Sam Phillips and Elvis too contributed so uh, enormously. And you're listening to Peter Gorolnik, and the book is Sam Phillips, the man who invented rock and roll. Well, a little bit further down the road in our conversation with Peter, Johnny Cash 
comes into the equation. He had heard about Sam Phillips from an Elvis Presley who wasn't yet famous and just raved about Sam. So Johnny showed up on his doorstep and basically begged Sam to take a chance on him. We hear from Peter about their relationship and what it shows us about how Sam approached his artists. In the case of Johnny Cash, uh, with a couple of the songs, uh, particularly Folsom Prison, which when when uh, John originally sang it for Sam, Sam wasn't very impressed because he sang it in a very slow, kind of fruity version where he's sounding like, um, uh, almost like, uh, well, let me take it back. He sang it in, in a slow version with a kind of uh, plummy kind of voice, almost as if Marty Robbins was, were crooning a ballad. Uh, Marty Robbins was quite popular then, so it's understandable that Johnny Cash might have wanted to imitate him. And it just didn't have the impact. And, and Sam encouraged him with well, I Walk the Line, just as he did with a, number, with a couple of other songs, to try an up-tempo version, which uh, John was appalled by at first and thought, well, once he hears it, he'll throw it out right away. But then when John heard the up-tempo version, John not, it wasn't a rockin' version, it was just a version that, and it wasn't a version that did uh, any, um, that did, did a disservice to John's own inspiration but it, it simply highlighted the qualities of the song. And when John heard, the, heard it, he recognized it and he embraced it, but he never thought he would. So it was that kind of thing. It's making small suggestions, putting a uh, you know, piece of paper in the frets of John's guitar so you've got it. It became a more percussive instrument, which was something Sam had done with some of the blues singers. Uh, it was looking for ways to enhance the, uh, the message and the feeling that the artist was already trying to get across and Sam sensing as he I mean Sam saw himself not so much as a producer which wasn't even a term that was known at the time but he saw himself more as a psychologist who could look into a person's soul and see what or see things uh, that they perhaps could not even see themselves inside them and then do his best to bring that out of them and that's what he tried to do with Johnny Cash and but he had such respect for, for John that in some ways the story of his giving John that push that John needed or the inspiration, I don't think Sam would, would accept that as a description at all. And uh, I don't think it would be a true description. It was He recognized in John one of the most, um, you know, I said that Howlin' Wolf was the most profound artist he ever recorded, but in some ways he had a similar respect for Johnny Cash for the way in which, for the songs that he wrote, for the presence that he had, and for the uniqueness of his voice. And he saw that as as something that he wanted to preserve at all costs. And so we've learned about all these artists. But eventually, all of them would leave Sam Phillips. We asked him why, that is, we asked Peter Goralnik why, and how Sam Phillips dealt with that. Well, there was no one reason. I mean, he was a one-man operation. And uh, the reason Johnny... I mean, Jerry Lewis, for instance, didn't leave him. He just crashed his career in England, which was, uh, you know, on a matter of uh, um, perhaps not the best judgment by bringing his uh, 13-year-old cousin, first cousin once removed, whom he had just married, uh, to England with him, and uh, and then introducing her to the first reporter who talked to him as... Uh, as his wife, which he really didn't need to do, so it was that was. But Johnny Cash left uh, fundamentally because he felt that Sam's attention had been diverted uh, by the success of Jerry Lee, by the explosive success of Jerry Lee Lewis, and I think it was as much a case of 
hurt feelings or jealousy as anything else. Johnny Cash also, he didn't really get more money. Uh, he got perhaps more artistic freedom, but I think that he would have agreed that at least for the first uh, four or five years that he was at Columbia, he never achieved either the success or the sound that he had at Sun. But, you know, Sam was hurt by that. and uh, But when he analyzed it, he could see that uh, artists like Carol Perkins and Johnny Cash, who left together, could understandably feel neglected um, because, as Sam said, uh, one of his worst faults was he never learned to delegate, and he was essentially a one-man operation. He had Jack Clement working with him, which was a wonderful thing, but but Sam essentially did everything on his own. It was he was operating in a small storefront studio. He was a one-man operation, and uh, uh, and he couldn't give his attention to a lot of artists so uh, at a time, and he saw that as a real character flaw on his part. Well, there you have it, an hour on the life of Sam Phillips by one of America's great music writers, Peter Goralnik. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, and once again, the life of Sam Phillips. Because on this day in history, in 1923, Sam Phillips was born. When you get the blues, a little shoeshine boy, he never gets low down, but he's got the dirtiest job in town, bending low at the people's feet.